0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. At last count, Iowa was home to approximately 800 organic farms. There are many compelling reasons to farm organically including profit margin. But there are also many challenges. The 22nd annual Iowa Organic Conference put on by the Iowa State University Organic Agriculture Program will be held on November 20th and 21st at the University of Iowa Memorial Union in Iowa City. The keynote speaker this year is one of the world's leading soil scientists and 2020 World Food Prize laureate, Dr. Ratan Lal. This hour, we'll get a preview of the conference and meet some of the other presenters. We'll talk about the challenge of transitioning to organic and tools that can make it easier and the mutually beneficial relationship between organic agriculture and pollinators. But to start us off is one of the early adopters of organic agriculture in Iowa. Ron Roseman is a fourth generation farmer who farms outside of Harlan, Iowa. His farm has been certified organic since 1994 and he hasn't applied pesticide since 1983. He's also a founding board member of Practical Farmers of Iowa. Ron, hello.
2: Yeah, Good morning, Charity.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here. And I want you to take us back to the 1980s when you started thinking about organic farming. That was a pretty radical idea back then. Tell me what attracted you to it.
2: Well, it certainly was, uh, you know, those were the farm crisis years and, uh, my wife, Maria and I, we had three little boys, uh, and, uh, my dad had just passed in 1980 and, uh, we were fighting high interest rates and so forth. And I just decided, uh, I knew how to cultivate and use some of the, uh, technologies that I grew up with since I grew up on, uh, same farm that I'm still farming today. And uh, I thought this is not going to be too tough. I thought I could uh, save money and I never liked handling chemicals. You know, you had to mix them yourself back in those days, pretty much. They weren't custom applied. And I just didn't think I had to have them. And that led down a path that I have never regretted.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about your operation today, because uh, you've, as I mentioned, you've been in that, doing this work for decades now. Tell me about uh, Roseman Farms in 2022.
2: Okay, sure. Uh, Today we have 700 acres, all certified organic, a very diverse organic crop and livestock operation with corn and soy, small grains like oats and hybrid rye. Uh, hay and pasture, and we have feral to finish hog operation, uh, certified beef cow operation where we feed the cattle out, and then uh, 250 egg layers. And we have two sons, two out of our three sons are working with us on the farm. Uh, My wife, Maria, runs a store on our farm where she sells our own beef pork popcorn and eggs for over 20 years now and uh have to include our last son mark who works for the foreign agricultural service uh as a trade representative in new delhi india so Uh we're all involved in agriculture
1: So, as you were transitioning to organic um, back in the 80s and early 90s, and taking on this radical (laughs) transition at the time, I mean, a, a lot of farmers still, when they think about farming organically, are really frightened of weed management because they can remember the bad old days when it was really hard to manage the weeds in their fields. And of course, a lot of technological changes have made that a lot easier for conventional farmers. How did you take on that challenge?
2: Well, uh, by through a number of ways. Uh, first of all, I had a degree in biology from Iowa State as well as uh, almost a degree in farm operations. So I had a really good science background. And then with the, the beginning of the practical farmers of Iowa changed everything. And uh, that was because the farmer who founded it, Dick Thompson from Boone, was doing credible on-farm research trials where he had randomized replicated trials, and uh, the results were being published in, uh, you know in, in the science journals. And I went to his farm in 1982, and that made a believer out of me because he had less weeds than I did and i was using the full array of chemicals you know i started farming in 1973 and farmed with chemicals for 10 years but i thought well what's going on here well it turns out that uh through research and through learning how to manage weeds then without chemicals through lots of different methods uh Could go into detail but if we don't nearly have time but it was through reduced tillage a form of no till and then crop rotations something besides corn and beans and then having livestock in the operation those three things were key and then it was learning from other farmers too we all started learning together through the practical farmers of iowa
1: and with this kind of mechanical weed management and the, the rotation and the livestock in the operation, this also makes it possible for you to really enhance the health of the soil, which I know is one of the big focuses of this year's Organic Conference. But that has made it possible for you to not have to add commercial fertilizer to your system too, right?
2: Definitely. We we are really proud of the fact that we haven't applied any commercial nitrogen Since 1982, and we just harvested our organic research corn trials, uh, and uh, we had one of the varieties in a very dry year that went 191 bushel, and that's with only with composted manure added to the uh, uh, soybean ground where we uh, planted the corn in. So. And then with organic prices, uh, you know, organic corn is priced right now at eleven dollars and fifty cents a bushel. So, so we think about net returns, not the absolute highest yield.
1: Well, and I was just going to ask you that because there are a lot of, um, I think, myths about organic farming in Iowa. There are also politics that surround organic farming in Iowa, the idea of transitioning to organic. But I know all farmers care a lot about that bottom line. And and this has been profitable for your family?
2: It definitely has. Uh, just, just look at our, what I told you earlier, 700 acres, which is a, not a lot of acres, but it is it is supporting three families. And the beauty of that is that it allows more people to be out here uh, on the land and being members of rural communities. And, you know, I, I just think it's what the future has to be more, you know, more uh, of with more farmers and more local food systems. And, you know, the the research has been... Is showing that our kinds of farms emit less greenhouse gases uh, for lots of reasons because we're not using chemicals and you know the big amounts of fertilizers, which nitrogen, by the way, produces nit uh, the excess nitrogen produces nitrous oxide, which is 200 times worse greenhouse gas than CO2. So anyway, the farms of the future have to include more local foods and more resilient farms that are not using as much of these harmful substances that affect us, uh, you know, so much with our health and our the health of our water.
1: Right. And then I was going to mention the health of our water, which doesn't necessarily just stay on your farm, but that's a, an important part of this puzzle as well. I, I think a lot of people are also afraid of the idea of organic farming because they're afraid that it's going to be so much more work than what is already a difficult job. Do you feel like you work harder than other farmers?
2: Oh, yes and no. I, I definitely think there's more management and more thinking, but that's what I just crave and and we are fully employed you know we're not uh uh, you know conventional farmers do have more time because uh because of how their operations work uh there's a lot of peer pressure too in out here in the rural areas Uh, if if you have some weeds people are going to uh, see them of course and they're going to make judgments but some weeds, as long as they don't hurt your bottom line, you know, you know we're never going to get rid of r- weeds entirely. J- just look at the weed resistance mm-hmm. now uh, to uh, some of these older pesticides like Roundup. Uh, so so you've got a lot of conventional farmers looking at alternatives to uh, pesticides as well.
1: You are taking part in this organic conference, uh, giving other farmers an opportunity to learn about weed management from you and I know practical farmers of Iowa does a lot of education farmer to farmer and and bringing people together. do you feel like the resources that people need to farm organically are more available now uh, there are places to turn for the important information they need?
2: Oh definitely so uh, you know there's organizations in every state, that are similar to uh, practical farmers of Iowa. And of course, we also have the other sister organization, the Iowa Organic Association in Iowa. Uh, USDA has stepped up to the plate, you know, since the advent of the National Organic Program back in about 2002. And I just also wanted to mention also, I'm not doing this program alone on weed management. I'm doing it with a young farmer from Audubon, whose name is Eric Madsen. And so, uh, you know, we are so proud of the fact that in in PFI with 5,400 members now in the state of Iowa, that we have so many of them that are beginning young farmers.
1: Ron Roseman, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Well, thank you so much, Charity.
1: Ron Roseman is a fourth-generation farmer who farms outside of Harlan, Iowa. His farm has been certified organic since 1994, and he will be presenting at the Iowa Organic Conference, taking place on November 20th and 21st at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. The focus of this conference is building resiliency through biodiversity and conservation in organic farming. We will continue to preview the conference in just a few moments. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including above and beyond cancer.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're previewing the Iowa Organic Conference taking place on November 20th and 21st at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. The focus this year is building resiliency through biodiversity and conservation in organic farming. Later in the hour, we'll talk about the mutually beneficial relationship between organic agriculture and pollinators. With me now is Bryce Erlbeck. He is a fifth-generation farmer, founder of AgriSecure, a platform. designed to help farmers transition to organic. He currently owns and operates B&B Earlbeck Farms, a large-scale organic row crop operation in Manning, Iowa. He is on the line with me now. Hello, Bryce. Hi, Charity.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I would love to hear a little bit about your origin story. Um, You started converting your farmland to organic in 2015. What attracted you to this idea?
3: Yeah, so I think uh, one of the big big aspects of this is we were too small a farm to make it conventionally, and, and being able to put that into numbers and understanding that uh, there was no room to come back, and not even a full time job for for my dad. That uh, we I started looking at other options out of college, and one of those was organic production. So we did it uh, first uh, for economics, and then second, uh, we we learned a lot about farming, and as your previous. Yes, there of how to utilize the the natural nutrients in the land and, and grow crops that might not be a, a, as good as our conventional crops, but uh, economics wise they're better and, and almost as high as yielding. So,
1: so when you first started considering organic, was did that? I realized that it, it was not nearly as uh, radical an idea in 2015 as it was back when Ron started thinking about it in the 1980s. But was that something that you had thought about before? Was this a new idea to you, based entirely on economics?
3: Yeah. So I had we had organic growers in the area, and and honestly, after college, I hadn't paid attention to them very much, but uh, started to learn from a few people in the industry what. What the economics were uh, on organic and understanding what it would take to be successful organic or thought I knew what it would take to be successful. And and we're learning every year. So it it was a little bit of understanding and being able to talk to previous organic growers and then uh, applying that to our farm and understanding that it it could allow us to come back and and be a part of the farming operation.
1: Tell me about your operation today, B&B.
3: Yeah, so it started out at about 700 acres and we're between 4,000 and 5,000 acres today. And what we've done and grown is through alfalfa and corn and a little bit of soybeans. And so our major bulk of it is alfalfa and corn, three years of alfalfa, one year of corn. And then we raise corn for a a chip company and almost 100% of our corn goes directly into a a chip uh, that, that is sold throughout the U.S. And so we are focusing, we make 100% sure that we have a good, healthy corn crop that uh, has good food-grade corn.
1: Well, and that, that is an interesting um, part of the puzzle because so much of the corn grown in Iowa does not go directly into food. So you know that that your corn is being turned into corn chips that people are, are consuming, huh?
3: Yes. Yeah, it uh, gets... It actually gets cleaned and then uh, goes in a fifty pound bag and goes straight to the food processor that we know very very well and uh has actually been out to our farm multiple times that we're good friends with so
1: so you talked about turning toward organic because you had too small of an operation to really be uh profitable conventionally that That's not the case today with four thousand to five thousand acres, so being organic has helped you grow
3: it has it. It has is, it is provided the economics and the opportunity to grow. Uh, for us, conventional-wise, it's just uh, you're barely – even people making money this year conventionally are going to give it back in a few years when the market turns. Organic has that uh, – I like to say, it's, again, we went for this because economics, but now you understand the economics allow you to do good good things for the land. And that's where our three years of alfalfa, one year of corn, we grow almost all of our nitrogen and, and, and all that. And so – it it allowed us to grow sustainably and hire people and pay, and pay people and have, you know, all the benefits that you would at a good job. And so I think it, it's sustainable through economics and then it, it trickles
1: down. So tell me a little bit about the transition process for you, because that is another one of those challenges that makes farmers think, ah, I don't know if I can actually do that. The transition process to organic is long. Tell me about it.
3: Yeah, so it is definitely, if you're just starting off with no organic acres, uh, very it's, it seems long and very difficult, but it can be pretty fairly easy, and how we've done it is put uh, alfalfa in and grow alfalfa for three years, uh, and I understand it's a little bit easier where our farm is located. We have good alfalfa markets, and we've taken five to seven years to build those alfalfa markets up, so it just didn't happen overnight. But you can be as easy as growing alfalfa, in 2015, it was either lose money on corn or soybeans or lose money on alfalfa uh, during the rotation. And we didn't have to cultivate alfalfa. We don't have to rotary hoe alfalfa. We didn't have to have the amount of chicken manure to grow corn. And so alfalfa was the easy choice for us in 2015 to transition through. Now, in 2022, it's a little bit different. I think there's a little bit different economic picture. Uh, but for us, we still transition through alfalfa. We plant it, we harvest it uh, sixteen times. We'll even do one year of organic alfalfa before we go to corn. And so we take care of the weeds. We put nitrogen in the ground, and we're we're, we're highly guaranteed a uh, very good corn crop after that transition. And so we 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 go through that method. It's not it works for us, but not for everyone.
1: Well, and and Ron was mentioning uh, the rotation that he implements on his farm, and we didn't really dig into that. And it sounds like you've worked out a rotation that works really well for your farm. We do see with a lot of conventional farmers, we see the corn-soybean rotation, those two crops back and forth, back and forth. Um, So you're saying that you grow alfalfa for three years and then corn and then back to alfalfa?
3: Yes. And the caveat to that was we may do soybeans on a few acres, not a lot. So we did about three, 400 acres of soybeans this year because of the, the, the price and economics on it. But if, if that doesn't pan fan out or it doesn't mathematically work, we just go back to alfalfa.
1: Help me understand what that rotation does for you.
3: So with three years of alfalfa, we'll cut each, each year four to five times. So we have 15 to 20 times of, of weed control. Uh, We also believe alfalfa puts down a a toxin that holds weeds back once we kill it. Uh, We just have a lot longer window from planting to weed emergence when we, when we go through it. And then we're figuring out 125 to 150 pounds of nitrogen for the corn. So we have good weed control. We provide a lot of our uh, 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 expensive input of nitrogen naturally to the plant. And then just the plant health overall after an alfalfa is, is phenomenal. We don't, use any uh, fungicides or pesticides uh, after alfalfa. It, it's, it's almost 100% guaranteed we don't have to because of that plant health. And so our whole goal is to raise really good corn and uh, make that uh, uh, as confident as possible.
1: So the alfalfa not only helps to nurture the fertility of your soil, but you feel like growing alfalfa for three years helps control the weeds in your organic corn.
3: Yes. Yes. Just uh, getting those, uh, you're cutting off off of four to five times, so you have four to five weed controls in three years. And just the natural toxicity of that soil, of that plant root, uh, we feel, helps keep weeds down.
1: So when you decided to transition to organic, what kind of resources were available for you to plan that transition, to make sure that you didn't go bankrupt in the the meantime?
3: Yeah. So I I think, uh, well, there wasn't a ton of university and practical farmers was a big one. So I don't want to forget people that were there that helped. Uh, but there wasn't what there was today. And I'm sure it was even less than in, in, in 1990. And so I think there's a lot more today than there was in 2015 or a lot more that I'm aware of. Uh, but the the biggest help we, I had was other organic farmers in the, in the area and not, and, and that were for, uh, a little bit further away. And so that's what we utilize for information, as well as practical farmers and, and other things like like that.
1: So you also were inspired then to found AgriSecure, which is a platform or a company designed to help other farmers transition to organic. Tell me more about that.
3: Yeah, so AgriSecure was designed to manage our, our paperwork and another friend of mine that operates a large organic farm, too. Uh, The paperwork and the traceability and the tracking and everything that you need for organic certification, I was getting quite difficult to do it accurately and very well and then be able to use that information to understand what we're actually doing. And so we've we've built a, a digital platform where we take all the information in and we organize it and we put it into a... It's like a full farm management platform that you're able to utilize that information for certification by pulling reports and being able to, to show that to the certifier, have all that traceability digital. So we have no pieces of paper floating around on our farm right now. And, and we're, by having that, we can get certified. We also have all the information of when these passes happen and we can start taking data and information from a large pool and being able to understand what is the best practices that we we can infer from the data? So twofold, there's being able to use it for certification. The second fold is being able to use the data you're already collecting in the shoebox.
1: Well, and I, I think that that's such an important point when we talk about that transition to organic, because it's not just time, of course, but there's a whole lot of paperwork. There's a whole lot of information that goes into it. And it must be incredibly devastating if you would mismanage that information and get set back a year.
3: Yes. So we have seen that uh, before and and people have hired us after that, that year to help them through the transition and, and, and inorganic. And and so we, we have seen that where people have gotten set back a year from not having all the stuff correct.
0: So
1: when you talk to other farmers who are beginning to go through this transition, what are some of the concerns that they have? What are some of those challenges that, that seem to be particularly daunting?
3: I think the biggest challenge is fundamentally understanding that there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel where they can sell $11 corn or $12 corn or even $7 corn when corn is $3. It's just it's unbelievable it, it, when you are a conventional farmer and you're scrounging for pennies and you're trading millions of dollars of corn on the board to gain an extra dime uh, that this is a real market and that people are paying for it as established and it is uh, there it's going to be there long term and it's been around forever so I think the fundamental idea of being able to sell higher value corn while doing this process at the end of it is very hard for the growers that we work with until they they get to that organic they go through the process and they do it and then I think the second part of the transition is mentally changing your thought process from one year at a time to thinking about five years at a time. If that takes a couple of years to change that as a conventional farmer, you always think about what am I going to do to profit most this year? And I think uh, organic farmers, you have to think about that in five to 10 year terms.
1: That I can imagine that that would be a challenging mindset to change. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that last time there was a survey, there were approximately 800 organic farms in Iowa. And of course, that that represents a huge diversity of farms. There are many different kinds of organic farms in the state. Uh, You're talking about a a farm where you're growing corn, obviously alfalfa as well, but you transitioned a row crop operation to organic. Do you have a sense for if there are a lot of row crop farmers who are considering this this path? So I...
3: The I think there is a lot of people interested, but uh, I think the difficult part is the land ownership base is is owned by 65 years and older, and they're doing fairly well right now. And to to have them want to transition to our game is very that's not going to happen. Hmm. And the young. So the the fact that so many farmers,
1: conventional farmers, are renting their land is, is one of those things standing in the way. Is what you're saying.
3: No, I, it is. It is that's standing in the way. But I think a, a lot of those older generation are still farming. Okay, uh, that that it might be another sixty five year old renting to another sixty five year old, and there might be another generation coming up. And there's no reason for those guys to change, or and they don't want to hand over controls. I got lucky enough where my parents said, "You you take it. You take out the loan. You do it," and they they let me take control of it and, and go do it. And I don't think that's the case. And then I, I think there there is a next generation that would attempt this and try it, but it's hard to get that that uh, going, get that started.
1: Do you feel like politics stand in the way for a lot of people that they just think uh, they dismiss organic before they really consider the benefits?
3: You know, I don't see that as much. It's not a negative connotation in in the the people that I have have uh talked to and uh, worked with. It's not, uh, the neighbors have been good and, and I work with 70 to 100 uh, growers in, in the area. And so it's not the, it's not the, the politics, it's the workload and, and the new learning that uh, really has kept people back.
1: Yeah. I asked Ron this question too. Do you feel like you work harder than conventional farmers?
3: <laughs> dollar for dollar, no. Um, but uh, and, and if you take amount of hours, Per acre, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so since you went through that transition, what would you say your greatest challenges have been to organic farming once you got through that that big hurdle?
3: (laughs) And this might be a little political, but it's figuring out who to sell to and who to not sell to has been the biggest thing. Growing crops, once you get a hang of it and you understand how to do weed control, you get your fertility down... It's not as difficult as as the first year. It gets exponentially easier every year. The hard part of organic is all the bad actors they're that that can make you bankrupt through none of your own fault.
1: Oh, interesting. We have about a minute left and I have 100 questions about that price. (laughs) So I think we'll talk about that another day. But um, to somebody who is considering transitioning a conventional farm row crop operation to organic, what's the one thing you'd tell them?
3: I would say go to the USDA government and pull the this is this is how I got started. Go to the USDA government, pull the national statistics for the, the return on conventional row crop farms in the last seventy years. And you'll see why the decision to really think about this is I think not counting 2021 and 22, it's like a dollar an acre, a dollar fifty an acre is the average return from a row crop farm conventionally over the last seventy years.
1: So the bottom line really is uh, where you would start in telling people to, to give this a chance.
3: Yes, the rest of it will come. You'll start understanding soils. You'll start understanding crop rotation and soil health. Uh, those, the organics really pays for you to do that. And you have to do it, otherwise you're going to fail. Uh, and so that, that uh, understanding the benefits of economics first and then applying those economics to making your soil better.
1: Bryce Ehrlbeck, thank you so much. Thank you. Bryce Earlbeck uh, Yeah, you too. Bryce Ehrlbeck is a fifth-generation farmer and founder of AgriSecure. This hour, we are previewing the Iowa Organic Conference taking place on November 20th and 21st at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. The focus this year, building resiliency through biodiversity and conservation in organic farming. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk about pollinators. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're previewing the 22nd annual Iowa Organic Conference put on by the Iowa State University Organic Agriculture Program. It will be held on November 20th and 21st at the University of Iowa Memorial Union in Iowa City. The keynote speaker this year is one of the world's leading soil scientists and also 2020 World Food Prize laureate, Dr. Ratan Lal. And we've been talking to a number of different presenters at the conference this year. Now we're going to turn our attention to pollinators. Of course, the public has become much more aware of the importance and the plight of pollinators in recent years. And organic farming can play an important role in creating habitat for native pollinators. Those pollinators also play an important role in growing all kinds of things. Sarah Nizzi is a farm build pollinator conservation planner and NRCS partner biologist with the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation.
4: Hello, Sarah. Good morning. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. And and as I mentioned, I mean, I think that public awareness of the plight of pollinators and native pollinators, honeybees are not native, of course, but we're concerned about them as well, has gotten a lot more attention in recent years. But there's still more work to be done. Tell me about your mission and in trying to raise awareness.
4: Absolutely. Pollinators have certainly increased um, in popularity amongst the public, probably in the last decade or so, and certainly has just extremely uh, streamlined in the last few years. And I think that's awesome. That's, you know, very good for us, especially at the Xerces Society and other organizations working to conserve pollinators. Um, But yes, there is much work to be done. Pollinators are um, they're at risk. In Iowa, we are home to 400 native bee species, 110 reproducing butterflies and over 2000 moths. And there is still so much for us to learn. And although we can potentially support a great diversity of pollinators, um, they are in trouble. And you know, just thinking about Iowa alone, we have 14 documented bumblebee species, five of which are considered at risk one of which is federally endangered, the rusty patch bumblebee, and one that is petitioned to potentially be listed, the American bumblebee. Um, We also have, you know, several species of butterflies that are considered um, species of special concern, according to the Iowa DNR, um, as well as threatened and endangered butterfly species. And then thinking more broadly outside of Iowa, 28% 28% of North American bumblebees are considered at risk. 50% of leafcutter bees, 20% or 27%, excuse me, of mason bees, which are really important for some of those early um, orchard crops such as you know blueberries or apples, and 18% of North American butterflies. So although people awareness is increasing, we still need to be doing more and more work to get habitat on the landscape, whether that's big or small.
1: It feels like this conversation about the plight of pollinators really began for a lot of people with honeybees and colony collapse disorder and these concerns about um, honeybees, you know, disappearing in many cases. And a lot of people who work in agriculture depend on honeybees. They're, you know, they can be farmed themselves and moved around and used as a tool in agriculture. Help me understand why it's so important to think about the native pollinators.
4: Yes, you are absolutely correct that honeybees and monarchs, but really honeybees sparked um, kind of the red flag as to what exactly is going on. And honeybees do support our agricultural systems, especially nationally. There are many foods that we certainly would just not have available because we rely so heavily on honeybees. But it's important to recognize that honeybees are managed by humans. They are essentially domesticated. They are one species of bees. You know, I had mentioned the statistics for Iowa, but in terms of North America, we have 3,600 native bee species. And research has shown that our native bees are actually more efficient pollinators at pollinating the crops um, that either depend or rely heavily on those pollination services. So it's, it's important to have space for all of our bee species, but particularly our native bees.
1: So you are going to be speaking at the organic conference uh, to a room full of people who work in agriculture, of course, specifically in uh, organic agriculture. but what's what's important for farmers to understand about our native pollinators?
4: Yeah, so it's um, it, it can be challenging to create habitat really at any scale, but when it comes to agriculture, there are so many mutual benefits. And in terms of ap- organic agriculture, um, that those places, you know, regardless of the crops you're growing, can be a safe refuge for pollinators um, simply by protecting them from pesticides, particularly insecticides, which pose the greatest risk. And then mutually, farmers are able to see benefits with their yields, with put potentially, um, you know, pest problems, because we could have a whole nother conversation about beneficial insects, um, as well as pollinators. And granted, there are crops that don't rely heavily on pollination. Of course, you know, corn and soybeans being one of them, corn is when pollinated and soybeans can kind of take it or leave it. Um, but many of our grow- organic producers are growing um, diversified on diversified farms with fruits and vegetables that do rely really heavily on pollination. So providing spaces for habitat and providing areas with protection from pesticides um, can increase those pollination services, um, potentially pest decomposition, um, aesthetics of course, and just having research has shown 20% of a farm in habitat can receive those benefits from pollinators and beneficial insects, whether that be yields or again like that um, crop pest management. Um, So there's really no shortage of potential.
1: When you talk about habitat, what are we talking about?
4: So habitat um, in order to, it's it's a broad term, but habitat in terms of pollinators is providing nesting and overwintering shelter as well as forage and protection from pesticides in order for pollinators and or beneficial insects to complete their entire life cycle.
1: So, when we drive around the state of Iowa, of course, a lot of people don't don't live near farms in Iowa. We We know that that sure. a lot of people live in urban areas and just drive past those farm fields. But when we see these conventional row crop you know uh, operations, the the rotation between corn and soybeans, and we see what is left behind when the crop is harvested in the fall is that corn stover or is what is left after harvesting bees uh, or harvesting beans, does that provide any habitat for pollinators or or is this kind of a desert for them?
4: I mean, I would say by and large, um, it's likely more so of a desert. Uh, there is potential in some areas where if there is nearby refuge or, you know, whether that be a roadside or, um, a bordering timber or a riverine area, that there could be potential for um, neighboring habitats and there could be ground nesting bees utilizing some of those um, spaces within crop fields. Um, but largely, it's they're not going to be providing much um, or at least certainly not the best of the best in terms of habitat.
1: Right. So when you are talking to farmers about habitat and supporting native pollinators. Are there ways to do that in your farming operation in these fields where you are growing a crop?
4: Absolutely. Um, and it, it can take place again at really any scale, whether those are um, urban farms, which certainly have different and more challenges when thinking about habitat, but all the way up to those larger um, conventional or organic row crop situations. Because generally, I would say most farms, there's got to be somewhere that's not producing as much, or there's not as good of yields, or it's perpetually wet, uh, where it may make more sense to discontinue cropping those acres, whether that be permanently or for 10 or 15 years and put that into habitat. But then also thinking about the placement of habitat and keeping potential pesticide um, exposure in mind and helping um, mitigate that exposure. So maybe, you know, thinking about the space and utilizing natural boundaries and other things like that. um, Just to be sure that you again, are providing the overwintering, the food, and the nesting shelter. But again, that protection from pesticides is huge too.
1: So we see, uh, we have seen a growth of prairie strip usage in um, in conventional fields and also organic totally. fields in Iowa. And that's one of those places where you can, can really see an incredible benefit for pollinators, right?
4: Yeah, certainly. And especially in areas where there may otherwise not be a lot of habitat around um, kind of those biological deserts, uh, so to speak. But again, when thinking about prairie strips, it's also important to still continue having um, that pesticide conversation, although it's often very uncomfortable um, and continue making ways to mitigate that exposure. Um, but certainly habitat is better than no habitat,
1: right. At all. right. Okay. so you're saying that if you have a prairie strip in the center of a conventionally farmed field, there there you'll receive some of the benefits, but the pollinators may not receive the benefits from that if you're also applying pesticides.
4: Well, they will certainly see benefits. There will be forage. There could just be some uh, unintentional side effects and whether or not, um, you know, especially with neonicotinoids, that's really the big one. Those insecticides that are posing the greatest risk to insects and other invertebrates and potentially larger fauna. Um, just keeping it in mind and being aware that um you know, there could be implications for that. Right. So, what about um,
1: cover crops, which is, uh, you know, something that we see used a lot in organic farming and a little in conventional farming? Um, do cover crops provide habitat?
4: They certainly could, um, but it really depends on the type of uh, cover crop that you're using. And obviously, that can really vary from operation to operation and, you know, goals and objectives and all the rest. Um, but flowering cover crops can be a potential you know forage opportunity um, there's not a ton of nesting or overwintering potential but uh, flowering cover crops are an option to help pollinators one of many on the farm. <laughs>
1: When you when you talk with people about pollinators, of course, the the highest profile pollinators tend to be different kinds of bees. Do you do you feel a reluctance from people uh, when you start talking about the importance of bees?
4: (laughs) Largely, I would say no. Um, Certainly, I do get asked questions about um, more so wasps than bees. Uh, but for similar reasons, I mean insects can be scary for some. I am actually allergic to wasps uh, myself. But you know, male bees do not sting. Uh, solitary wasps are make up a large portion of wasp and they are very docile. Um, so they're it's you know, if you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone.
1: Now, a lot of the people that I've interviewed about pollinators over the recent years have been entomologists, but that's not your background. Tell me how you got involved in this work.
4: I am not an entomologist, and I'm so happy to say that to a large audience. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I work for the Xerxes Society, which is full of very talented um, entomologists and people with diverse backgrounds. But I came into conservation with the Uh, Natural resource management, restoration, ecology background. I am very into plants, um, particularly native plants. Working within the prairie ecosystems has really driven my career over the years. I have only worked and lived in Iowa, although I have worked all over the state. So I came across this opportunity to work with the Xerces Society, and I really thought that it was basically the next level for me to uh, think more deeply about native plants and their relationships with insects and specifically pollinators. So
1: as this conversation has gotten traction, as more and more people have, have even created pollinator gardens in their own yards, on their own land, uh, what is missing from the conversation, do you think? what What are the messages that you feel like we really need to amplify at this point?
4: I think the big message is, you know, of course, kind of providing the the, key, the four key components when thinking about pollinator habitat. Again, I've said it over and over, nesting and overwintering habitat, food and protection from pesticides. And then lastly, um, sharing your story with other people. Um, I think the key messages that may be missing is just the power that people have and the power to inspire others and that can be very subtle it doesn't have to be a grandiose gesture it can be just as simple as putting a sign out in your yard or having a conversation over coffee uh, or getting involved locally with policy um, within your communities to help you know drive this um, drive the train to increase more pollinator habitat Um, so it's it's it can be a really complicated, big issue with no silver bullet or simple solutions. But I think something that we easily forget is just um, the power of connecting with one another and sharing our stories
1: and why we do what we do. So you will be talking to an audience that has been drawn to the organic conference. So so the majority <laughs> of them will already have embraced um, a, a lot of these messages about conservation. What are you hoping to be able to communicate at this conference?
4: Yeah, that's an excellent question, because I don't think the people sitting in my room are going to necessarily need to be sold on pollinators. They're obviously interested. So I want to be sure to give them the knowledge to really understand the biology and the life history of pollinators, because I think in order to conserve any species, it's important to kind of know the day in and day out of how how they work in the world and how they survive. And then again, hopefully just inspiring them to whatever action it is that they can take, however big or small, to um, share that with other people and to help spread the word.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me.
4: Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.
1: Sarah Nizzi is a Farm Bill Pollinator Conservation Planner and NRCS partner biologist with the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. She will be one of the many presenters at the Iowa Organic Conference taking place on November 20th and 21st at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. The focus of this conference is building resiliency through biodiversity and conservation in organic farming. And there is still time to register for the conference. Again, it's coming up on the 20th and the 21st. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebby.